Welcome to the C.S. Lewis Festival Scholar Series. I'm your host, David Krause. Today's episode is the kickoff of the much-talked-about series of talks on C.S. Lewis and Dante's Divine Comedy at the C.S. Lewis Festival featuring two remarkable authors and speakers, Rev. Dr. Malcolm Geitz and Rev. Dr. Michael Ward. Malcolm and Michael, longtime friends in England, had never appeared together, and so we were happy to foster a series of talks and concerts that they gave in the United States. The kickoff of the festival was a concert they put on at Beards Brewery in downtown Petoskey, Michigan, where the festival takes place each September. The following four talks, coming in subsequent weeks, come from the Saturday Seminar. Malcolm Geith is a renowned poet, author, singer-songwriter, Anglican priest, and academic. His talk today helps explain why C.S. Lewis was a lifelong reader of Dante. What does Dante's epic poem, Journey in Paradise Lost, and C.S. Lewis have in common? Well, you're about to find out, and it is fascinating. Be sure to stick around after the lecture to hear how you can keep the C.S. Lewis Festival lamp lit and keep this series coming. Now, enjoy Malcolm Geit. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here, and what, what a delightful place. Uh, so beautiful in this kind of crisp autumn day and the bright light falling. I love the, uh, the, the long porch there and the lovely rounded turrets. Actually, this building, although it's in wood, is very much in the same style as my own college, Girton, which is also a kind of 19th century Gothic fantasy with lots of sort of turrets and spires. So, um, so I feel right at home. Thank you. Now, this morning and uh, early into this afternoon, as um, Michael Ward and I alternate, we're going to be going back and forth between Dante's uh, great poem, the Commedia, it was simply called, uh, Boccaccio then called it the Divine Commedia, because it was so good. And we're going to be alternating back and forth between that and uh, a fresh look with uh, Michael Ward at the works of C.S. Lewis. So you might ask, is this just a random coupling? No. <laughs> just a cut to the chase. Not least because Lewis was a lifelong reader of Dante, a scholar of Dante, wrote some of the finest essays on, on Dante. Uh, but mainly because Dante's own great work, his great poem, is, has been, in the realm of English literature, has been continuously and endlessly really generative and generous. Going, the first person to start channeling Dante in English and saying, oh, there's this Italian poet, let me just riff on him for a bit, was Geoffrey Chaucer, who called him Dant, you know, and then he's referred to again in Spencer, Milton picks him up. There's a bit of a hiatus in the 18th century, and then a glorious outburst in the 19th century of people reading and rereading Dante, and eventually even on into the 20th century, Lewis picks him up, um, T.S. Eliot uses him extensively, so for that matter does Samuel Beckett. He's kind of continuously there in the back background, almost as a companion and a kind of conversation partner. It's almost as though the passage of time doesn't matter. There's something in what Dante says and how he says it that makes him feel like our contemporary, that makes us feel almost that he knows us inside out. 
And in fact, that very idea that there might be a poet from another age, maybe even another language, who turns out to know you better than you know yourself. And every time you open his page in the outward book, it feels like he's turning another page in a book in your attic <laughs> that maybe you would have preferred to have forgotten, but you need to read it again. <laughs> yeah? Dante himself models that experience in the Divine Comedy. Because right at the beginning of that story, when he gets lost in his life, he meets up with his favorite poet. Dante begins the whole poem with that wish-fulfillment fantasy that I don't know if you've had it, but I have it all the time. And one of the first authors that I loved so much that I went, gee, I wish I'd he'd been around, you know, I'd been around to me, I wish I'd meet, it was C.S. Lewis. I always had a fancy about meeting C.S. Lewis, and I kind of came so close, you know, my father-in-law was one of his students. I've got a letter in my bureau at home from C.S. Lewis to my, my, my wife's father congratulating him on getting a first in Oxford. I, my, the guy that was my spiritual director for ages, Simon Barrington Ward, was chaplain at Magdalen College when Lewis was there. So, like, I know three or four people who knew Lewis directly. But I wish I could have known him myself. You know, I, I just feel like he's there so often. Not only when I want to agree with him, but when I want to disagree with him, when I'm having an argument. And one of the things my father-in-law told me, which was really great, was that he loved to be disagreed with. He really liked a good argument. And he would argue for victory, but he, also, he would also be very fond of you because you'd paid him the respect of taking him seriously enough to disagree with him rather than just kind of nodding sagely but not getting it, you know. <laughs> I feel the same way about my students. I love the students that ask what they're afraid is a dumb question because that's the real question that opens the whole thing up. It's just like, you know, when Jesus is saying sagely to the disciples, uh, I'm going now to prepare a place for you. When I'm gone, I'll take you with me. You know the way to the place I'm going. And all the disciples are going, mm, yes, you know. They've got absolutely no idea. They're thinking, we only just got here. Where are we going now? You know, they don't even... And um, it's only Thomas, good old so-called doubting Thomas, who's, who says, Master, we don't know where you're going, so how can we, like, how can we know the way? And Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Think of how important that saying is. Think of how much help and hope and trust and joy and guidance, that one saying, I am the way and the truth is given. We wouldn't even have had it if it hadn't been for the, the guy who said, gee, I don't get that, can I? So, so that leads to two things. One is, if I start saying stuff that you think, what is that all about? Come on. Like, for heaven's sake, stop me and ask. There'll be questions and answers at the end, but if I say something that really doesn't compute for you, then just, you know, wave and I can, you know. i am uh, been a teacher in Cambridge for a long time, so I'm used to sharp questions and talking, talking off the cuff. So. But also I wanted to mention that great saying of Jesus about the way, the, the, the camino in Italian. I am the way, the truth and the life. I'm not just the destination. I'm not only the beginning and the end. I meet you in the middle and I create the very path by which you, you move. Dante knew that absolutely, as so did Lewis. And Dante starts his whole poem. And what I'm going to do this morning is give you part one and two very rapidly. And then when after, after Michael's here, we're going to look at the third part, the heavens part, because that links so closely with Lewis. 
Dante opens his whole poem, the word the way, occurs in the very first line. Nel maestro di cammino di nostra vita. In the middle of the way, the cammino, the way of this life. Mire truvare che in a selva oscura. I found myself lost. Isn't that a great paradox? I found myself lost. I found that I was lost uh, in a dark wood. I found that I was lost is a true experience, isn't it? When you realize you're lost, you have completely lost the way, then rejoice and be glad, because that's useful information. The thing you want to really avoid is being totally lost and thinking you do know the way. <laughs> You've got to find yourself lost to be lost. So he realizes he's lost, right? He's, he's in a completely dark wood, he's looking for some light, and he sees a shining mountain and a light, a light of one of the, the planets, one of the stars, probably Venus, the third heaven, just glimmering. And he says, if I could only get up there, up onto that shining mountain, I'd find the way I lost. I'm stuck in a dark wood, I can't find the path. But maybe from the mountaintop I could see the path. So he starts trying to climb the mountain, but every time he's about to get somewhere out of the wood onto the slopes of the mountain, a horrible wild beast comes and pushes him back even deeper into the lost wood. And these, uh, there are three different creatures. The first one that comes is a leopard. And he thinks, oh, I can outrun a leopard. Mistake. And um, says, but he says, well, never mind. Maybe the leopard's gone. I'll try again. And then a lion comes and stops him. And then he runs away from the lion. And he has one more go. And a wolf comes, a ravenous wolf. And he realizes there's no way I can get up there. And he's being driven back down into the wood when he sees a figure standing on the path on the wood. And he, uh, he says, who's that, who's that? At least I've got a companion. And the wolf seems to have disappeared for a bit. So he goes along and he goes along and he says, are you, are you, are you a man, are you a person? And the voice says, yes, I, I was once a man. I was a man in Mantua in the days when I stood in this flesh. And he begins to talk in beautiful Latin poetry. And Dante goes, oh my goodness, it's Virgil. It is actually Virgil. This is the greatest poet. Let me just read you in Dorothy Sayers' translation a little bit of how, how that makes this figure, whom Dante hasn't quite yet recognized, says, I was a poet born under Julius, born under Julius, but writing in the days of Caesar Augustus. I was a poet and I wrote about Anchises' righteous son who sailed from Troy when Ilium's pride fell ruined down ablaze. And you, how are you lost? Why are you running? Let me help you. And then Dante goes, canst thou be Virgil? Thou that fount of splendor whence poured so wide a stream of lordly speech? I was awestruck. I hung my head in wonder. Oh, honor and light of all poets, all and each. Now let my great love stand, stead me. You are my master and my author. Mio magistro, you are great, my master and authority. And Dante, uh, Virgil says, look, enough flattery. We have a problem here. You think you can climb this mountain, but you can only climb this mountain if you're already on the right way. And you're not on the right way. And because you're lost in this dark wood of your broken self, these beasts will chase you and they'll drive you back because they're your own shadows. You're gonna to have to follow me on a darker and more difficult road. We will come to that mountain, but only until you realize how you lost and where you're lost. And so begins the great adventure through the three realms. Now, one of the books in which Lewis 
channeled his inner Dante most profoundly was The Great Divorce, which, like Dante's book, is a story about uh, hell and heaven and about how people might get from one to the other. And I don't know if you remember when the, the, the narrative character, um, the, the, the first person speaker, Lewis, if you like, comes on the little uh, day trip up from hell to see if he wants to stay in heaven. He's met by a resplendent and glorious figure with a long white beard and a Scottish accent who meets him. Suddenly Lewis goes, oh no, 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 Dick, he can't be, he can't be. You're George MacDonald. Oh my goodness, I can't begin to tell you how important you've been to me. And MacDonald says, well, I think we've not the time for that. I think, you know, we've been lost, son, you better. And, you know, then that whole passage, if you read it, is totally a riff on Dante meeting Virgil. And he's saying, George MacDonald is Virgil to my Dante. And he's going to guide me. So that's, you know, how he locates himself and how he sees the Dante text as a text that's always generative. And later on, we come to, when we come to talk about Dante and the Paradiso, um, you'll see how closely that's channeled and how it, how it links in with the Narnia stories. So you might want to turn to Dante just because, you know, if you, if you, if you love Lewis as much as, as, as I do, you're interested in reading what he read and seeing what beautiful things he did with it. But Lewis would certainly not want to see Dante as a prelude to Lewis. <laughs> Lewis would want to see Dante as the greatest poet of his, or perhaps of any age, and as somebody who not only expressed his own time and culture, but who expressed something permanent and true about what it is to be human especially about what it is to be human in this middle way, in the middle of things, in between, if you like, heaven and hell, to be a pilgrim, to be still on a journey, to have lost the way and to find the way again and to tread the way. And that's very, very briefly what I want to do now is take you on a, on a kind of whirlwind tour of the first two books this morning um, in my session, the... The Inferno and the Purgatorio. Now, the last thing I need to say before we start on our journey is um, Dante speaks of his poem as an allegory. Another good idea that C.S. Lewis picked up, where you could tell a story that's a great story in itself, but that when you come to recollect it later, you say, oh, wait a minute, that's not just about what was out there and back then. That's what's about what's in here and right now. Dante wrote a letter to, to a chap called Congrande, who was his patron, tried to set out what he meant by allegory, and he used script, or by the sort of multi-level reading, and he used scripture as an example, how we read scripture, or how they read scripture then. This, the passage of scripture uh, that Dante chooses is, is, is pretty significant. He takes a verse from the Psalms that refers to the Exodus. So, when Israel left Egypt and the children of Israel left the house of bondage in exitu Israeli de Egyptu. It was in Latin, okay? So he, Dante said there's at least four levels to read this. On the literal level, it's telling you that historically as an actual event that happened, the children of Israel were in bondage to Pharaoh. They were in a state of slavery and Moses called them out of that slavery and they went through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and eventually crossed the Jordan. So that tells you literally what happened, that journey. But at another level, 
because the whole of the Old Testament is talking to you about Jesus Christ in the end and pointing towards him, and because Moses was promised, one day I will come down. The story of Christ becomes the true Israel. Christ comes with us just as Moses went back into Egypt to find the children of Israel, experiences the pain and the suffering, leads us out. That Christ himself, as it were, leaves the house of bondage. He dies, like going down to the Red Sea. He rises again. He takes us with him to paradise. So it can be seen as about the, the life of Christ. But at a further level, it can be seen as about every single one of us that we are born into the slavery of sin, that at some point we're woken up in our conscience and called by the God who loves us, not to be content with the slavery of sin, but to come out of it. And we find we can't do it because we're pursued by the Egyptians, <laughs> just like, um, like the, the, the children of Israel were. And in fact, the only way we can be relieved from sin is with Christ to die and to rise again. And we have to die to sin and we have to rise again to new life in Jesus. And in dying to sin, our sins are left behind us. And that is what going down into the Red Sea is. That we go down into the Red Sea, we're pursued by our sins. And the Red Sea in that reading is our baptismal font. And when we baptise children in the Church of England, we pray a long prayer over the water that says, through the waters of the Red Sea, you led your children out of slavery to freedom in the Promised Land. Through the deep waters of death, you brought your son to new life. May this child and this, this person who is washed in this be, be, be led out of sin and into freedom, be led through the death of Christ into his, his life and righteousness. Yeah. So all those levels are going on in one story, and we know that, even if we don't consciously think it. I don't know if you guys have the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, Pilgrim Through This Barren Land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And, you know, let the cloudy, fiery, cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Okay? So... Even if we never used the word allegory, even if we said, oh, a polyvalent, multi-leveled reading beyond the literal, you know. <laughs> in fact, every time we stood to sing that hymn, that's what we were doing. Because it's natural. Because you can think of episodes in your life that really happened. One day when a shaft of sunlight came down and somebody said something so important to you that you never forgot it, it was a historical event. But you also realize now that it's a deeper turning point in your psyche. And that moment of change becomes symbolic for you of many other things. We're naturally symbol-making creatures. In the scripture, we've been given a series of stories which God has already prepped for us and said, listen, guys, keep reading this story because it's going to mean a lot to you by the time you know. This isn't just the Jordan in a geographical sense I'm talking about here. So Dante is totally soaked in that. So he does the amazing project of saying, I'm going to tell a story which will be outward and visibly about the journey beyond death and about how I, as a living person, made it. So you could read it as a bunch of speculation about what, whether this, where is this person going after they die and why is that person in heaven, and you can read it like that, fine. But actually, Dante wanted to show you, really, an allegory about where your soul is right now, where your soul could sink to if you just let it go <laughs> and stay lost, <laughs> or where you could rise to and how you could transform even your own sufferings if you'd let God work on it with you. 
So that's the kind of thing that his poem is about. And you can kind of see that in this great painting, which was painted sort of penitentially, really, uh, because the, the, the Florentines, as you may know, exiled Dante. So they, they painted him outside the walls of Florence. There he is standing with his poem. And you can see the three realms. Now, the first thing I want you to notice as we took to look briefly at the Inferno is that, see the battlements of Florence, see that turret and tower? Right, that's, that's the world we're living in, Florence. To uh, your left, Dante's right, where he's gesturing, you can see the souls descending what's going to be down into the awful circles of hell, right? Take a look at the front bit of hell. That's the same as the front of Florence, isn't it? In fact, what you get is, is, is the kind of the world's first cutaway diagram. It's kind of a cutaway of Florence. Now, if you, cut, if you went into Florence, you'd only see the outward and visible people walking around, looking really prosperous and you know, buying and selling and uh, you know, betraying and all the stuff that they did. Um, Dante's going to do a cutaway, which is not just a, a cutaway of the architecture. It's a cutaway into the soul itself. And the things he tells you and the things he shows you there are the spiritual realities, okay? Right, so it's a rather long preface to the, the, the swift thing we're going to do. So let's, let's just, here's another cutaway. Um, this is from Dorothy Sayers' beautiful translation. There's loads of translations, by the way. The two I like to use most are Dorothy Sayers' one, which is out of print, but you can get it on AB Books, which was with Penguin Classics. That's got great notes and cool diagrams like this. And uh, the modern one I like to use is by a professor in Cambridge um, called Robin Kirkpatrick. And that is also published by Penguin Classics. When they finally figured they needed to replace Dorothy Sayers' ones, they got the best guy and, and he did one. So those are the two translations I would work with. Uh, it's great to have a parallel text, though. It's great to... You'll hear me occasionally quoting it in Italian just because it sounds so good, you know. So you can see here that... Dante imagines hell as a sort of great pit. And there's a series of, as you might say, vicious circles going down. You go round and round and round, and every time you get a bit deep. But can you see it's kind of got like three sections? And there's like a big drop. Dante is trying to think about how there's different levels of sin. By sin, we mean falling short of the glory of God. We mean, you know, Dante read Augustine and he knew that sin is not a positive thing in itself, neither is evil a positive thing in itself, because when God made everything, including all the angels, including Lucifer before he fell, he made everything good. Behold, it was very good. You can only speak of a thing of as bad or evil when having been good, it falls away from itself. A good thing corrupted, Yeah. If I say that's a bad refrigerator, I mean it's, I know what a refrigerator is supposed to do, which is to keep food cold, and it's not keeping food cold. But it had to be a good refrigerator before it broke and became a bad refrigerator. Do you see what I mean? So in every fallenness, in every sin, there's some good thing that we could have done. There was the better version of that thing. Yeah? A king is meant to be glorious and kingly, but he can be corrupted and become a tyrant. Yeah? You know, a parent is meant to be nurturing and, and, and loving and mothering, but they could go wrong and become smothering and dominating and controlling. But you've got to know what the good thing was. Just because there are some bad parents doesn't, parents doesn't mean that parenting is a bad thing. And we have a real problem with this at the moment. We see the abuse of some good thing, and then we throw the whole good thing out. 
We see abuses in family life. We say, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't have families. You know, maybe there's something wrong about families. We see, uh, you know, rapacious and, 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 and dishonest firms and trading. We say, oh, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, any kind of buying and selling. You know, we, we should take it. We've got to understand what the good was before we see it's corrupted. So that's the first thing he says. And he also notices that one sin kind of leads to another. And you can start off fairly light. So in this first bit, the very first circle is called limbo, and that's people just drifting around who didn't, just didn't do anything in particular one way or another. Then you fall down and you have the circle of the lustful. So these are, if you like, the warm-hearted sins. Dante calls them the sins of incontinence. So they're the sins where there's a good thing that God has given you, but you can, you've taken a bit too much of it too soon or in the wrong way. You've turned God's goodness into something that turns out to be bad for you and others. But God never intended it that way. So that's going to get fixed in the Purgatorio and celebrated in the Paradiso when you get your love ordinate, that is to say, in the right proportion again. But this is the picture of where the soul gets it out of proportion. So very famously, in the circle of the lustful, which of course is the first bit of the book that everybody turns to, you know, they, they just look up lust in the index and go, okay, great. So... There's more romantic poems in the 19th century about the circle where Dante meets, meets the lovers, Paolo and Francesca, than there is about all the rest of the Inferno. But Dante actually has that way up there that's not deep in nether hell. So, um, so Dante, in that story, all the, the punishments, and you, we need to get this clear if you go out and read Dante. Dante is not some kind of weird sadist trying to think of more and more horrible punishments for people and describe them in lurid detail as though he were making some kind of 14th century video nasty, okay? That is not what he's trying to do. Everything that is done to the sinners in the whole of the Inferno is actually an allegorical picture of how that sin hurts the soul as a sin in itself. The punishment is the thing itself. So when he meets Paolo and Francesca, who committed adultery, and they were, re they, you know, they were good friends, she, you know, there were problems with her marriage, it was arranged, she goes and meets Paolo, and they're reading the stories of King Arthur together in a romantic garden, and they get to the story of how Lancelot fell in love with Guinevere, even though Guinevere was married to Arthur. And they're so swept away, they're just like carried away by the beauty and the romance of the story. And they're getting closer to each other in the little rose arbor, reading about... And then Dante puts it very discreetly. It's like a nice discreet cut. And he says, he says they read no more that day. <laughs> so they kind of got carried away. And in fact, Francesca was Dante's great aunt. So he's kind of got, he's got something in there. He knows, he knows the story. It's a kind of family story. Now... When they get to the circle of the rustful, there's smoke. There's this thick smoke. There's a few little sparks, but it's mainly smoke blowing round and round in a great circle, right? Literally, smoke gets in your eyes. You know, they just, they can't see properly. And then they see all these people literally carried away round and round and round in the smoke, unable to get a firm footing, unable to touch base, unable to be steady for themselves or steady for other people. And in amongst the whirling people, he sees Paolo and Francesca. And by grace and magic, and, well, not magic, but by the, by the sort of 
special power that's been given to Virgil so that Dante can learn from this experience. Um, Paolo and Francesca are allowed to have a bit of a brief footing and they light down in front of Dante and tell their story. And Dante's so moved by it, he faints, you know, because he realizes, as we discover later in the Purgatorio, this is one of Dante's problems. So he kind of is paying attention here. And then they want to keep talking. They're saying, oh, I really wish. And then she says, oh, oops, I'm being carried away. And that was the problem. They just got carried away. And that's what happens to them forever and ever now. If that's what you choose, if you want to choose to be carried away, you'll be carried away. Later on, there are people who are hypocrites and one half of them is doing this and presenting a real good thing and the other half is doing something else. And in their bit of hell, they're literally cut in half and they can't get their two halves together again. That's not because I really want to think of a horrible punishment whereby you're cleaved in half. It's because I want to show you what you will do to yourself if you become two-faced. It's a picture of what becomes of the soul. So you start off with, you know, lust and gluttony, and then there's not handling money right, the hoarders and spendthrifts. But then, do you know what I mean? If you don't keep control of your own natural appetites, you start losing your temper a lot. So you have the wrathful. Now the wrath becomes a problem, because then you're not just overindulging with somebody. Now you're going to start really hurting people. Do you see we've got a bit of a big drop down there? Now we're into violence, violence against self, violence against others. And then that violence, we've got another drop down. Now we're getting into fraud and malice and the deliberate deception of others. And finally, we get to a kind of terrible deception of even the self. And then at last, we get down to betrayal, complete betrayal. And as they go down that last bit, Dante says, these are the people who have lost il ben d'intelletto, the good of the intellect. And just if you look down, I just want to lead, there's, who are there? The counselors, you get thieves, literally stealing physical things. But then you get the people who are stealing other people's souls, who are deceiving. Counselors of fraud, sowers of discord, falsifiers. Well, we could map that onto political discourse in lots of different ways. Uh, Dante does it totally, and he puts all the bad guys in the right places, as he saw it in the politics of Florence. I don't think you need to read all the footnotes to do that. But you might like to just take this diagram and, like, overlay it on the evening news sometime, you know? <laughs> just try and figure out. And that'll be fun. Then you want to sit up late one night and tell your own story of your own life. And you want to overlay it on that. How are you going to do that? Now, this could be bad news. So let me just tell you, <laughs> let me just tell you that all the time, Dante's going like, all the other shades are going, oh my God, you're alive. You are so lucky. We've made our choices. We're stuck here. But you've got a choice to make if you ever get out of here still alive. So how am I going to get out of here? And he's going to, you can see Dante going, oh my goodness, this was a serious drop. Like, how are we going to climb back up? But of course he doesn't have to, because this is going right down to the core of the earth, and there's Satan. Not some grand thing, Satan is just the icy, selfish, cold, frozen ego stuck in the center, endlessly consuming the traitors, himself a traitor to heaven. And they just keep going, and Dante knew that if you get past the center of the earth, and you kept going, you'd be going against gravity, wouldn't you? If you passed the center of gravity, everything would like flip upside down, and you'd be climbing. 
And that's exactly what happens. They get past there, they keep climbing, and suddenly they, like, they're climbing up these really weird stuff, uh, rough, hairy banks, and uh, like, like all kind of fibrous undergrowth. And Dante's going, this is a bit horrible, what's this? And Virgil says, oh, didn't you know it's Satan's hairy legs? You know? <laughs> and they realize Satan, the grand figure, is just a fool with his head in the sand and his waves, legs waving upside down who turned God's beautiful goodness and order upside down and said, evil be thou my good and better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And he got what he wanted. But it's just stuck with his own self, not the glorious and beautiful ordered cosmos that God made him to be a light in. He chose self and darkness. So eventually they make their way down. Now, how did they get this far? How did the other devils not stop them from going there? Well, the way has been opened. Every time they get to what they think will be an impassable uh, barrier, there's a gap. The masonries fall away. There's a hole. And the devils are really embarrassed about this. And they're going like, oh, well, we're fixing that soon. You know, like it's uh, like we had this, like we had a little bit, we got a bit of disturbance and landslip here. There's a bit of an earthquake. And Virgil says, <laughs> Virgil calls their bluff and he says, listen, it happened after I was born, but I know what happened here. Jesus Christ being this way, hasn't he? <laughs> he descended into hell, didn't he? He broke down every one of your barriers and he came here and he rescued Adam and Eve, didn't he? And all the others that he wanted to. There's no place, there's no place so low you can sink that Jesus Christ hasn't sunk lower to find you. Because as the scripture says, underneath are the everlasting arms. And of course, that's, that's very much what Lewis felt. That, you know, Lewis famously said, at the end, and this is pure Dante, this is Lewis Channing, pure Dante, he said, in the end, because we have freedom, but because God's will for us is our peace, and God knows better than we do what is best, because he knows and loves us even more than we know or love ourselves. But in the end, there's going to be two, two choices. Either we're going to say, with resignation, but also with delight and discovery, we're going to say to God, thy will be done. And we're going to find his services perfect freedom. Or with infinite regret, but honoring our freedom because it's real, God will say to us with great sorrow, thy will be done. And our will would have been to stay somewhere here. That's why in the great divorce, everybody is free to leave. But they've got to acquire a taste for heaven. So um, there's a little bit of an overview of hell. So you can say, Gee, I, I really went through hell with that C.S. Lewis speaker. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I just came innocently along, you know, it's a beautiful place on a nice autumn day, and you know. But I really, what I want to do in order to show you what, that, what that's like throughout this day, I'm gonna read you from a sequence of poems I wrote about my own journey with Dante through hell and purgatory and heaven and what that felt like as, to me as a person. So it's a bit confession if you like, but I think this will give you an impression of how the poem might affect you and maybe even how it affected Lewis in different ways. The poem starts, as I told you, uh, in, in media, well, in, I call this poem in medias res because Aristotle said that if you're gonna write an epic poem, you should start in medias res, in the midst of things. And Dante's poem starts uh, nel mestro, in the middle. And Dante was a middle-aged man. I mean, you could say, if, you, if you're interested in that way of seeing it, that the, the Divine Comedy is the classic of the midlife crisis. But luckily, he gets through it all right, you know. It's a... So this is my take 
on how it was for me too to have loved poetry but have got to have got lost to find my own shadow beasts and to realize that I have to start again my journey in medias res and so I start again here in the middle the middle of a life I scarcely know how many guesses left to get the riddle the woods are dark and darker shadows grow I followed someone here but lost her leading with nothing but my lostness left to show. The voice that drew me on is faint and fading, but something else is creeping up behind. Over whose heart, I wonder, are we treading? My shadow beasts can scent, though they are blind. All three are here, the leopard, lion, wolf. I should pause and say, those three types of sin as you go down through hell are represented by the three beasts. So those sins of incontinence, those sort of light, quick, swift, sometimes apparently rather beautiful sins, are the leopard. And the sins of violence and misused strength are the sins of the lion. And the dark, treacherous sins are the sins of the wolf. My shadow beasts consent that they are blind. All three are here. Leopard, lion, wolf, my kith and kin, the emblems of my kind. They've come to draw me back across the gulf, back from the path I wanted to have chosen. Fall back, they call. You can't run from yourself. Fall to the place where every hope is frozen. But not this time. This time, I choose to choose the other path. Path of the dead and risen to try the hidden heart of things, to let go, lose, to lose myself and find again the voice that called and drew me here, my freeing muse. Begin again, she calls. You have the choice. Little by little you can travel far. Learn to lament before you can rejoice. Sing to the shadows, sing and do not fear, but sing them into love little by little. Begin the song exactly where you are. And so I start again here in the middle. And that's my sense of what it feels like every time to begin again with Dante. So Dante sets off with Virgil thinking, oh, this is cool. Virgil will just take me quickly around where those beasts aren't, and then we'll, we'll, then we'll be right, right up the mountain, no problem. And then Virgil takes him to a gate that says, abandon hope, or ye who enter here. And Virgil says, don't worry. They've abandoned hope, but you don't have to. But you're not going to have a real hope until you know what could become of you, where you could be heading, what unchecked, your selfishness could become. Why you need to be found again and not be lost. So they set off through the gate. And uh, I wrote a poem about that. And of course, what Dante is doing when he writes this is remembering his own sin. Dante couldn't have written it so vividly if he hadn't been tempted by all of those things. And sometimes we think the best way is just to seal it off, forget about it. That's the counsel of despair. You forget about sins you don't believe can be forgiven. If you remember before Christ the ones you know can be forgiven, then they're dealt with. You've only got to go through that hell once. But you've got to go through it. So this is my take on that. Through the gate. 
Begin the song exactly where you are, for where you are contains where you have been and holds the vision of your final sphere. And do not fear the memory of sin. There is a light that heals, and where it falls transfigures and redeems the darkest stain into translucent color. Loose the veils and draw the curtains back. Unbar the doors of that dread threshold where your spirit fails, the hopeless gate that holds in all the fears that haunt your shadowed city. Fling it wide and open to the light that finds and fares through the dark pathways where you run and hide, through all the alleys of your riddled heart, as pierced and open as his wounded side. Open the map to him and make a start. And down the dizzy spirals through the dark, his light will go before you. Let him chart and name and heal. Expose the hidden ache to him. The stinging fires and smoke that blind your judgment carry you away. The murk and muted gloom in which you cannot find the love that once you thought worth dying for. Call him to all you cannot call to mind. He comes to harrow hell, and now to your well-guarded fortress, let his love descend, the icy ego at your frozen core can hear his call at last. Will you respond? So that's kind of the question that Dante is asking, which is why when our, uh, our great 19th century Prime Minister Gladstone, um, great friend of liberty throughout the world and uh, helper of so many nations to achieve their own liberty um, and uh, liberator of, of, of so many suffering in our own country, he was a consistent reader of Dante. Gee, wouldn't it be great if we could have a Prime Minister again or you guys could have a, you know, who just like realizes that they need poetry every day. <laughs> just saying. Uh, so. This is what, this is what, uh, what uh, Gladstone said about reading the Commedia. The reading of Dante is not merely a pleasure, a tour de force, or a lesson. It is a vigorous discipline for the heart, the intellect, the whole man. And C.S. Lewis and uh, his great friend Owen Barfield who were both huge Dante fans, used to meet every couple of years. And do you have a thing like where people binge on a box set? Like you just get the box set and you get a bunch of pizzas in and you just go like, we're going to watch every episode? Yeah? Sort of, you know, I suppose if you were doing it with Downton Abbey, you'd get a lot of crumpets and tea. And, you know, yeah, yeah. But anyway, every couple of years or so, uh, Lewis and Owen Barfield would have a binge on Dante. <laughs> and they would just read the whole Commedia together. So... Luckily, we don't end with through the gate in the inferno. Finally, as he gets down to that frozen core and starts to climb beyond, he, he realizes, he hears a great Latin church hymn, which is about the, the banners of Christ having conquered Satan. And in that hymn, the Vexilla Regis, the tree of the cross becomes, as it were, the flagpole or standard on which is, is, is flown the flag of our freedom in Christ. So 
this is my respond, my response, you know, the icy ego at your frozen call can hear his call at last, will you respond? And here's how I finish my, th my three poems on the inferno. Vexillarages, <coughs> the royal banner, that means. I hear his call, now help me to respond, my freeing muse. I need your presence here. For poetry alone moves me beyond the known and overknown, beyond the sheer drop into darkness and the all unknown to the last limits and the true frontier where light and life dare to begin again. Reason alone will never take me there. The shaping spirit of imagination must also be my guide and bring me where we pass the center, turn the world around and find the first steps of the hidden stair that climbs out of these pits, far underground against the stream of Lethe. Help me climb out of the depths that you have helped me sound, little by little, one step at a time, towards the other side, the starlit world where he has gone before and for all time. The world tree's steadfast roots are crossed and coiled, but on the tree of life, he dies for me. Vexilla rages sounds, and all unfurled, the royal banners of the true and free stream out against the tempest and the fear, and summon me to all that I should be. Up from that black and smothered atmosphere, I toil towards the light. The worst is past. I hear the voice that called me, deep and clear, and let love draw me into light at last. Thank you. So, the, the, the inferno ends with, with, with the word stella, stars. They climb up and up and up and they finally come out right on the other side of the world and they see the, 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 the stars. Now, um, what do they find on the other side? Well, Dante's Commedia, the Divina Commedia, is divided into three books. We just did a whistle-stop tour of the Inferno. That was the first one. The second one is the Purgatorio. Now, just quickly, so we can get this out of the way, I don't know where people are on, you know, Reformation, Catholic, Protestant, divides, all that stuff, but purgatory as an idea, particularly among the Reformed traditions, has had a bad rap for a good reason, okay? The bad rap for the good reason is that the idea that there was a place where, although you're already found and saved by Christ, you could, as it were, get out of the, have washed away from you all the grime you'd accumulated, finally be freed from the constraining habits of your sin. So you're already saved. The question is, can you be sanctified? Can you be made fit for heaven? Now, as an idea in itself, that's not a bad idea. You know, we need someone. C.S. Lewis once said, he compared it with a dentist chair. He said, When the tooth of life is drawn, I'd like to hear an angelic voice saying, Now rinse your mouth out with that. <laughs> what happened in the, in the late 15th and, and early 16th century was that a bunch of people who needed a lot of money to build St. Peter's got hold of the idea that we can pray for the people who are going through that and they pray for us. Well, that's fine. But hey, how would it be? If by doing a good deed here, we could make it easier for grandma as she's working her way through that. And then maybe the good deed could be writing out a check for the building of St. Peter's. And like, you give me this check and we'll make sure that the Pope 
tells God to let your grandma off a few years. It's just a sweet deal, you know, and it was called selling indulgences. And Martin Luther quite reasonably said, wait a minute, this just doesn't, I don't think it works like that. But so, so there was a bit of a push against it, right? And we threw out the whole idea of purgatory. So then we came up with the idea like, as the tree falls, so it lies, you die. It's like, you know, the divine sorting hat. You just kind of like, you're in Slytherin. Forget it, kid. You know, as though, as though um, there was nothing, you know, as though we could step, having just repented at the last minute, and just automatically be totally free and loving to everybody in heaven and not have an ounce of selfishness in us. You know, maybe we could just, like, get to base camp first and, you know, have a little bit of an orientation. And that's the way Dante saw it. Now, remember, Dante's writing an allegory. None of what Dante says he's expecting you to believe literally happened. He's using the idea of a journey to teach you something about your soul. So you can read the Purgatorio, even if you're 100% full-on beer-drinking Lutheran, who, you know, who says, you know, I don't believe in purgatory. And the reason why you can do that is, is this. This is the map. Of, it says the earthly paradise at the top of there, but that's just because that's at the top of purgatory. It's the map of Mount Purgatory. It's this beautiful, beautiful mountain on the other side of the world, Dante imagines. Dante knew that the world was round, and he knew that you would therefore come out on another hemisphere. He also figured out you would therefore see different stars. So when they eventually get out and they see this mountain, they look up at the sky and they see the stars. And Dante imagined that because it was the cross of Christ that had enabled them to get out of hell in the first place, that they might see a beautiful cross-shaped constellation, kind of like a southern cross. Uh, And he'd never seen it, but he just imagined that it might be there. And in fact, it is. So, this mountain, the, the, the one thing you need to know about this, with its terraces around is this is the positive shape that was made by the negative pit of hell. If you choose the hellish option, you go in a series of vicious circles getting down and down, and even your suffering just drives you more deeply into yourself. Suffering can be a great way. People can come through suffering purged and so full of love and so lightened of all the other loads. You've met people like that. You go to visit a sick person and you come away more blessed than blessing. You know people like that. But you also know people who were genuinely hurt or, or, or betrayed or some terrible thing happened to them and they just can't let it go. And they've become bitter and twisted. And the more they suffer and cause themselves and other people to suffer, the more completely locked in their own self-complaining ego they are, right? You know that. So you can go down, we're all going to suffer. Look, we're in a realm of suffering, you know, we're in the Shadowlands. One day all will be cleared and cleansed and healed. But right now we're going to experience adversity. Jesus made it really clear. Take up your cross and follow me, right? So we're going to take up our cross and follow him. Or are we just going to stay nailed to it, complaining in the wilderness somewhere, right? What are we going to do with our suffering? We can make it the negative pit. Or we can, even though it seems to come around again, we can find that every time the memory of that difficult thing comes around again, we're just that little bit higher. We've just got that little bit more perspective. We're getting into purer and clearer air. We've got a more commanding view. We're coming back to where we belong. Because right at the top, you may have seen it in the first picture I showed you, there is the, uh, the beautiful earthly paradise. So um, I'm going to take a risk here and go flicking through. I don't know how to do this in any other way. Let me just very quickly 
go back to that. That's Mount Purgatory in a more in a painting. And you can see there's all the people going round and round. Do you see the beautiful angel there? Right? That's the angel at the gate. And each of these terraces represents the effect that one of the seven deadly sins had on us while we were in our life. The way it made us less than our best self. So the bottom one is pride, and then you go up through all the others, right? And then the very last one, you see the circle of fire there? That's lust. And as I said to you the other night, it's amazing how he meets all these famous people in history all the way through, right? And they are famous people in history, but they're also, they're, they're also representative of different things. And they're just certain big clusters. So right down there with the hypocrites and the Simoners and the people who sold the church's precious things for, for their own personal gain, there's an amazing number of popes all <laughs> with their heads in the sand. I don't know why that is, but, you know, Dante was a good Catholic. He was just, just recording the things the way he saw it. So equally, he's a great poet. And when you get up to dealing with, dealing with lust issues and dealing with, you know, warm-hearted sins, the, the openness and tenderness and vulnerability to beauty and the desire, this, which is, you know, it's got to be set right. There's a glorious version of that. But there's also an egotistical version of that. There's a version where you see the person utterly as a person and you love her because you see who she is radiating through what Dante called rightly the holy and glorious flesh. Or there's the version where she's just an object to satisfy your wandering desire and please your ego. Is it a person or is it not? So that has to be purged and dealt with. But for some reason, the closer they get to that last little circle, the more poets there are. So in the end, it's just all poets going through there, you know, getting their stuff sorted out. And of course, on the other side, for, for Dante, and this is the great thing I haven't told you, how did Dante luck into finding Virgil just when his sins were about to eat him live, when he was lost? How did that happen? Well, luckily for Dante... The girl he fell in love with when they were both nine in Florence and who then gave him a kind of transfigurative experience just by waving at him and greeting him when he was 18, Beatrice, Beatrice, stayed faithful to him. And when she died, as she died as a very young woman and went up to heaven, she kept an eye on Dante and she realized he was going completely wrong. And she's going, oh, like my man has gone really astray. How do I sort him out? And like what he really needs at this stage in his life is a good poet. So she sends, Vir Virgil, can you do me a favor? You know, it's like, you gotta sort my guy out. So Virgil comes down and says, well, I can only get him so far because I was born before Christ. You know, I, I can't do the whole grace thing. I can show him what's reasonable. I can show him how any decent classical person would have sorted their sins out and tried to get their life in order. So I'll take him back to the earthly paradise. But after that, you've got to take over, girl. And uh, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so, so, <laughs> but it's kind of got that atmosphere in a way. So when they get up there, Virgil says to Dante, I crown and mighty thee over thyself. Those external authorities and rule keepers, they're written in your heart now. And then he just steps back. And, having, and when Dante's afraid to go through the fire, Virgil says, I can see Beatrice smiling. So all this time he says, I'll go through the fire for her. You know, I'll purge even my work. And he steps through the fire. And there's, there's a beautiful procession. There's a chariot pulled by griffins, you know, the whole thing. And there's Beatrice. And of course, he's, you know, wanting that tender embrace. And it's beautiful. But, you know, this is a seriously brilliant, great Italian girl. So she looks at him and she says, so what took you so long? <laughs> you have really made a mess of your life. You know, look what I had to do. I had to, I had to what did you, what did I have to drag you through to get you here? And she, like he ticks, she ticks him off. 
for like about, you know, a hundred lines of inspiring poetry. I go, he's crying and everything. And then finally she comes back and says, well, we're all forgiven. You know? <laughs> because he's in the realm of grace and forgiveness. And then that's how he gets into heaven, just by looking in the eyes of the beautiful girl who knew him right to the core, knew what was wrong, and loved him enough to make him new again. And she represents the grace of Jesus Christ to him. And she'll take him only so far. But in the end, he's got to turn to God himself. And that happens at the very end. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So let me rapidly go back to uh, where we were. So there, there is the, uh, the Mount of Purgatory. There's a beautiful... All the souls on this mountain are already saved. They're just working through a bit of their stuff to be ready for heaven. And the angels are helping them, and verses from Scripture in the Bible are helping them. When Peter lets them in at the gate, they, uh, well, no, it's not Peter, it's an angel that lets them in at the gate. Peter's a bit further up. Uh, so they have inscribed on their foreheads the letter P for peccator, for sinner or sin, seven times for each of the aspects of the sin. And as they get round each of these cornices and deal with that stuff, an angel comes running around the other way with a feather and just brushes the angel's wing off their forehead and one of those peas disappears so that they're ready finally to return. There is an amazing sequence of events. Let me just uh, quickly, uh, I'm gonna go back to my own poem again now, the three poems I read wrote for the Purgatorio. So there's a place called Ante Purgatory, not Ante, but Ante, can you see that? It means before you get there. And this is a really interesting idea of Dante's, that if you've been through hell and you want to get on with getting to heaven, you now realize you know, you're going to have to make a serious moral inventory, you're going to have to come and deal with this stuff. Anybody that's been in the recovery community will totally get the Purgatorio. But how long did it take you to finally realize you needed to do this? Like, how many times did you put it off? Why did you have to wait till you'd really hit rock bottom before you could even start this thing? So in a kind of divine justice, the late repentant, it says, the indolent, the preoccupied, <laughs> yeah? Ticks a few boxes for me. Uh, the unshriven, that means people who never confessed their sins to anybody, they just kept it in here and didn't tell anybody about it. So that it was never dealt with. All these people, before they can start the business that's going to get them back to paradise, they have to hang around. They have to wait outside the gates for just exactly as long as they wasted time on earth. And there's a great bit where Dante meets a guy called Bellacqua, who was a mate of his in Florence. And this is just, this is where Dante is so true to life. Okay, I'm a musician. And I mean, I hang around with a lot of other musicians, some of whom are, you know, semi-pro musicians. Hang around is the word. There's an awful lot of kind of hanging around between gigs and before gigs and after gigs. And so Dante knew this musician who was a lute maker and lute player. And what he used to do was he would like build a lute, you know, work really hard, get the materials, borrow the money for the materials, build one or two lutes, you know, fantastic build a loot, sell the loot, get the money, get the loot for the loot, as it were, and then, and then like also use the loot he had play. And then once he got the money in, he just wouldn't bother to do anything. He just hung around Florence, you know, I would say drinking cappuccinos, but sadly didn't have them then, but, you know, drinking the vino, chatting with his mates, playing the odd loot thing, you know, wooing the ladies, until he had literally nothing left. And then he'd beg and borrow some money, oh, man, I haven't got any cash, you know, help me out. And then he'd build another loot, you know, and then do it again. And he's always just lounging around. So 
Dante's going along with Virgil saying, wow, I'm so glad to get out of hell. Let's climb this mountain. And there's this laid back voice goes, hey, Dante, man, how's it going? And, <laughs> you know, it's almost like that in Italian. And there's Bellacqua, like, hanging out, you know. And he says, oh, thank God you're saved, you know, because I was a bit worried back there then, you know. So he knows that Bellacqua said, but I said, like, have you not changed? Like, what is it with you musicians? Why, you know... And, and the lady's going like, I'm sorry, I really have to talk in this laid back voice and I'm, I can't even get up, but like, this is the deal. I have to lie here for like 40 years and, you know, and it's really funny. I mean, it's just, you know, so it's like, say one for me, Dante, you know, and it's kind of, you know, it's fantastic. I kind of relate to that character. So um, I'm going to read you. Uh, these now. So the first one I've read here is called, I'm reading you, and this is the first in the series, this is De Magistro, and this is partly about how Dante had Virgil, right? We've all got somebody like that. That you've got to think about a teacher in your life or somebody who saw you were out of the way and put you back on the way. I happen, this is, and I just can't, I can't, Thank this person enough. I was stuck in a boarding school, a horrible English boarding house, which was pretty much like the Inferno, actually. Finally, I got some light when, when um, we were, it was an all-boys school, but then the girls' school moved next door to us, and I, I got to know one of the girls in the girls' school, and she was not... Uh, she lived at home. She, she was a day student, and she had a house in London. She, her father was dead. She lived with her mother, who turned out to be a brilliant medieval scholar. And uh, so I started going out with this girl. I used to get invited, rescued from the boarding house and invited back to her house for weekends. Her mother sort of saw that I loved medieval literature. I was only still, you know, in like the end of high school. And, at some, and she also had a very beautiful friend who went to a different school. Her mother said, I think it's time you guys read Dante. Maybe we should just go through the text together, you know, on the weekends when you're here. And she was a great scholar, she had an Italian. So my very first go through Dante was with this, uh, you know, with my girlfriend, eating good food for a change in a lovely place, but also with a fantastic teacher who had written a book uh, which was never published but was called The Needful Journey, which was about the journey of all of us from the Garden of Eden to the City of God. And she is the person who showed me how to read poetry. So the very first of my Dante poems I wrote, even though it's not the first in the sequence of order, was this one. And I wrote it just after I had become a school teacher myself and I realized how hard it was to teach and how you always needed to be a student if you're teaching and still learning. So this is not only, this is about Dante comes out of the, um, uh, he, he comes out of the darkness and Virgil helps him to start climbing the stairs. De Magistro, that means about the teacher or of the teacher. I thank, I thank my God I have emerged at last, blinking from hell to see these quiet stars, bewildered by the shadows that I cast. You set me on this stair in those rich hours, pacing your study, chanting poetry. The word in you revealed his quickening powers, removed the daily veil, and let me see a sunlight played along your book-lined walls that words are windows unto mystery. From Eden, whence the living fountain falls in music. Remember, Eden's right at the top of the, the mountain. It's coming down towards you. From Eden, whence the living fountain falls in music. From the tower of ivory and from the hidden heart, he calls in the language of Adam, creating memory of unfallen speech. He sets creation free from the carapace of history. His image in us is imagination. His spirit is a sacrifice of breath upon the letters of his revelation. 
In midmost of the word wood is a path that leads back to the springs of truth in speech. You showed it to me. Kneeling on your hearth, you showed me how my halting words might reach to the mind's maker, to the source of love. And so you taught me what it means to teach. Teaching, I have my ardors now to prove, climbing with joy the steps of purgatory. Teacher and pupil, both are on the move as fellow pilgrims on a needful journey. So that was how I felt things began. So then, when I look back on my own life and began to read it through the lens of the Commedia, I realized that uh, there was more, there had been, not so much now, but there certainly had been more than a bit of Belacqua in me, uh, the guy that made the lutes and hung around. So my next poem in the Purgatorio sequence was just called Love in Idleness, which as you know, uh, is also the name of a flower. Uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream, it says it fell upon a little western flower before melt milk white, now purple with love's dye, which maidens and maidens call it love in idleness. So this was, this was also uh, uh, thinking not only about the, my laziness in my student days, but also the kind of strange indolence of love, that kind of being in love where you can't really do anything else. You know, you're just kind of like, you just sit around being in love, you know, you know, you don't kind of, you know, and then you don't even, sometimes you're so, you sit around being in love and you're not even being practically helpful to the person you're in love with. You know, like kind of, you know, putting on the kettle and making a cup of tea, you go, oh, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, this is called Love in Idleness. When I am bogged in indolence again, it's purgatory for me, as for Belle Aqua hanging around instead of getting on with his salvation. I can't lift a finger. The snow is falling heavily outside. The earth gets lighter as the sky gets darker. I shiver where I'm sitting, window wide for snowflakes to drop in and fade away and hide myself in something else's hide, coat, panther black and shabby hat, wolf gray, as my numb fingers wrap about my pen. All I need is fire and something to say. <laughs> Belacqua's lute speaks with the tongues of men. The tongue-tied mind is loosened into praise. I slip the disc back in its sleeve again. One side is columns stiff with turgid prose about the Quattrocento. On the other, a sound box holds the craftsman's fretted rose with Florence in the background. What a cover for the God who spoke through someone else's fingers when ours were still entwined with one another. Ages ago, we heard the music linger before this light had lost its radiance and cast on love the shadow of our hunger. We spoke of free will and of innocence and trod the pavements of the fourth cornice where love is to be purged of indolence. I write these verses pending my release. So I'm still stuck on that mountain, you know. You find yourself someplace. So I wrote that poem a long time ago about, about also I have fits of melancholy. I have times of kind of, I really can't do anything. And I, it's very difficult because I, I haven't had that for a while. And when I can do stuff, I do a ton of stuff. 
you know. But when I can't do stuff, I beat myself up for doing nothing, you know. So there's kind of that. And I just, Dante had me, you know, I, just that whole conversation. And there's an entire discussion after the, about that about the nature of free will. So finally, as you may remember, we get up to that circle of fire. And that's the third of my Purgatorio poems and the one I want to leave you with uh, this morning. Because all of this is just a preface to getting up into the true paradise of the seven heavens. Dancing through the fire. This was also the passage in the Commedia, at the end of the Purgatorio, which most moved T.S. Eliot. And for T.S. Eliot fans out there, uh, readers of Little Gidding, will know that there's a bit where Eliot is remembering how he was a fire watcher, uh, fire warden during the Blitz in London, and how after, after the, the air raids of the Blitz, you know, the, the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed across the horizon of his homing. He's out walking and the smoke is rising and he meets somebody and it turns out to be Dante. And Dante tells him again about the journey he has to take and says, from wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. You know, he faded on the blowing of a horn. You know, it's a wonderful passage. This is my take on that. I quote Purgatorio, uh, uh, 22, line 73, per te, poeta fui, per te, cristiano. So this is the poet Stasius, who is an early Christian poet, who's just getting ready to dance through the fire himself. And he looks back and he sees Virgil. And Stasius wrote in Latin. So he goes, oh my goodness, it's Virgil, you know. That's one of the beautiful things. You know, Dante was quite a proud guy. And he figured he was a pretty good poet. So part of the way... God helped to purge him of the pride. And Dante never comments on this, but you see it, is that he's, he makes him do the whole journey with an even greater poet. So, like, every time Dante is helping somebody, he goes, oh, wow, Dante, I read your, read your latest book. It was very cool. They go, who's that guy with you? Wow, that's Virgil. Yeah. So Dante spends his whole time, like, with everybody else going, man, you know, it's like, it's, you know, Virgil's got, you know, T-shirts saying, I'm with stupid, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's great. You know, it's really good for Dante. So, so Stasius comes out, you know, like Dante's a big Stasius fan, saying, I'm Dante. And he goes, man, you're Virgil, you know. It's, uh, so so Stasius says, per te, poeta, vui, per te, Cristiano. Through you, I became a poet. Through you, I became a Christian. That's not a bad thing to say to a pagan poet. But you all know about Daniel, Matt, you don't, I know, but I'll tell you now. Virgil's fourth eclogue. Vir Virgil, as well as writing the Aeneid, wrote a series of eclogues, uh, which were kind of rural poems. And in the fourth one, he says, a child is going to be born, and, during, and when that child is born, there will be peace across the world, and that child will bring peace to the nations. And of course, the modern scholars now think, oh, he was probably writing it about some royal kid. And, yeah. But the Christians knew better. And the Christians saw that somehow he saw over the event horizon the coming of Christ. So they kind of baptized him. Anyway, Stasius, just by reading Virgil, became a Christian. And uh, my Christianity also came through the poets. This is, in a way, it's quite a, a personal poem. It responds to that last poem, Love in Idleness. The difference is I wrote Love in Idleness when I was in my late 20s. Or no, you know, mid-20s. I wrote this poem in my late 50s. <laughs> so it's been a long time. You know, this is a journal of many, many years of reading Dante. And what I realized about this poem was that the fire through which they dance is in fact the fire of a true and redeemed love. 
that dealing with the issues of desire is not about killing desire, it's not about not longing. He, his love for Beatrice is even greater when he's gone through that fire. Up in the third heaven, you know, the great, the great courtesan Kunitsa is blazing in glory. And it's about giving what you have to God and letting him redeem it. Uh, any readers of The Great Divorce? Do you remember the guy with the lizard on his shoulder? So that part of his life and appetite is riding him and governing him and telling him where to go. And he's got to give it to the angel and have it die. But when it's resurrected, it's a great white stallion and you know, he's riding it. And it actually, that desire actually takes him higher into heaven. Do you remember that passage? It's a remarkable passage. Um, that's very, very Dantean. That's the whole Dante message about love right there. You know, redone by, by Lewis. So here's uh, sort of my take on some of these things. And since the whole poem is about love, the whole of the Divine Comedy is about the love. It, the last line of the Divine Comedy, it's a plot spoiler here. Uh, the last line is the love that moves the sun and the other stars. For Dante, Dante's equivalent of the force of gravity is the force of love. That's what's moving everything. Uh, so here's Dancing Through the Fire. I recently had to undergo surgery because um, I'd broken my leg really badly and I'd been kept on sort of nil by mouth for a long time. And, and then I had to be anaesthetized. It was quite a complicated thing. And the anaesthetist, when I came, after I'd come around, I was wheeled back up, uh, um, slightly delirious, because I'd had nil by mouth for a long, you know, about a week. And the, 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 the anaesthetist came and I said, you were, you were saying something really weird when you came around from the anaesthetic. It was like in another language, but I wrote it down. Just, uh, I said, oh God, like you're really worried now, yeah. And I, I said, per te poeta, per te cristiano. I'd actually been saying in it, that bit of the Dante, through you I became a poet. <laughs> when I came out of the anaesthetic, I thought, God, that's really weird. <laughs> so anyway, uh, here's the poem. Then stir my love in idleness to flame, to find at last the free refining fire that guards the hidden garden whence I came. Oh, do not kill, but quicken my desire. Better to spur me on than leave me cold. Not maimed, I come to you. I come entire, lit by the loves that warm, the lusts that scald, that you may prove the one, reprove the other, though both have been the strength by which I scaled the steps so far to come where poets gather and sing such songs as love gives them to sing. I thank God for the ones who brought me hither and taught me by example how to bring the slow growth of a poem to fruition and let it be itself a living thing. Taught me to trust the gifts of intuition and still to try the tautness of each line. Taught me to taste the grace of transformation and trace in dust the face of the divine. Taught me the truth as poet and as Christian, that drawing water turns it into wine. Now I am drawn through their imagination to dare to dance with them into the fire, harder than any grand renunciation, to bring to Christ the heart of my desire just as it is in every imperfection surrendered to his bright refiner's fire, that love might have its death and resurrection.
thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the trip. Thank you, Malcolm, and thank you for traveling with me on the Lewis Festival Scholar Series today. Please know the C.S. Lewis Festival is happy to announce that, yes, there will be an in-person festival this coming September. Everything kicks off on Friday, September 10th, with the keynote address by best-selling author Philip Yancey. Our mission is to provide an enriching cultural experience for all people that explores the life and work of C.S. Lewis through the collaborations by the arts, education, and faith communities. Wouldn't you like to learn more about the festival? To become part of the Lewis family or to learn more, simply go to our website, cslewisfestival.org. That's cslewisfestival.org. Please join me again next Friday at 12 noon in this series of four talks on Lewis featuring the poet and author, Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit, and Lewis Scholar, Reverend Dr. Michael Ward. Thanks to podcast producer Zach Smith of Hands Media and recording engineer Peter Montide. On behalf of the Lewis Festival, thank you for listening. Here's to Narnia and the North.